so what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks is we've been talking about the book of Genesis, and that is the first book of the Bible. That's the beginning of the story of God's relationship with humanity, uh, with each and every one of us as individuals. And what we've been trying to do so far is to really see God at work. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we saw God at work in creation. Uh, we're going to see God uh, unfold his plan uh, for redemption uh, after what we're going to talk about tonight that God has always had a plan uh, to redeem his own people uh, through his people. Uh, we're going to see that through the stories of Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob, and even through Joseph as well. And so the first uh, uh, message that we talked about was that we're all created in the image of God. Uh, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we're all created in God's image and in his likeness, and we're all created to mirror his um, uh, attributes, his characteristics, his expressions uh, to the world. So not him physically, but him in every other way that we uh, can think of. Uh, last week, uh, we talked about some of the more challenging questions that people uh, who are not followers of Jesus, atheists, agnostic, or uh, even fo some followers of Jesus, questions they have about creation. Because we all wonder how everything became the way it is. How was everything created? Who created it uh, to begin with? And so we talked about those questions last week. Uh, and so actually on our website, you can go back to it and listen to it if you haven't. You know, And I can give you that website later on uh, if you want to actually go back and listen to that. Uh, but tonight, we're going to continue uh, on to the end of the series. And we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 24. So we can go through the whole thing there. And now there's this idea that I've been reading about recently, and maybe you're familiar with it, maybe not, and so hopefully I can make, uh, I, I can make some sense of it uh, for us today. Uh, but this is, it's this idea that familiarity breeds contempt. And this is, it's this idea that we, we tend to dislike things, disrespect things, or not respect things as much. Uh, we don't keep these ideas at the forefront of our minds, or maybe we don't like people, uh, you know, certain, certain people, because the more we know about someone, or the more we know about something, tends to be that we maybe like them a little less, or don't respect them as much. We take things for granted, take people for granted the more we know about them. Now, there was this article that I read about, or read recently, and it was a study where uh, some researchers gave a whole bunch of characteristics to a group of people. Now, uh, they gave characteristics about a certain person. Now, this group of people didn't know who that person was. They were just given their characteristics, just, you know, what do they look like? Are they a good person? Uh, what do they like to do? Things like that. Now, contrary to the opinion of the researchers, it, they found out that the more that this group of people knew about this person, um, the more that they actually tend to dislike them. They actually tend to hated, hate this person the more they knew about them. Now, you might be thinking, if you are married, if you have a significant other, you're dating or something, or you've been married, uh, you know that we married flawed people. We ourselves are flawed people as well, and if you don't think you're a flawed person, you probably uh, should check that out. You probably are a flawed person. But the, despite the flaws that we have inside of ourselves, despite the flaws in the other people that we, that we meet, or if you're married to somebody, you know that the more you get to know them, the more you actually get to love them. You actually like them uh, even more because it's not really the bad things you're focusing on, so you're focusing more on the, the good things that you tend uh, to find out about the person. So this idea may not be true for relationships, but I can't help but see how this might be evident um, in uh, the things that we believe, uh, especially the things that we believe about God. Now, there are many truths and commands which we're given to follow and believe, 
Uh, but many of the truths and commands, I think, that were given in the Bible, I think we've lost respect for them. I think we take them for granted. Uh, we don't keep them at the forefront of our minds anymore uh, because I think we're too familiar with them. We know so much about the Bible that a lot of these truths that we're supposed to hang on to, we don't hang on to them uh, so much anymore. Now, an example would be is that the Bible tells us that the Word of God is alive and it's active. But yet, when it comes to our daily lives, we don't maybe truly believe that it's something that we can apply to today, that it's something that is alive, that we can use for our journey of faith uh, and practice. The Bible also tells us that we're supposed to pray without ceasing. But yet, when we have hard times in our lives, uh, we, uh, we, we tend to think, well, you know, God, God's going to take care of me. I'm a follower of Jesus. God's going to take care of me. That's it. But really what we do by saying that is that we devoid the prayer of its value. So the Bible tells us pray without ceasing, but yet maybe we don't do it as often because we think just because we're in, everything's just going to be taken care of. And though that might be true, we should still pray and pray without ceasing. Now, maybe you agree with those, maybe you disagree, or maybe you can think of other truths that we have in the Bible that maybe we do take for granted because we're too familiar with them, or we don't keep them at the forefront of our minds because they are too familiar to us. Now, one of the things, one of the teachings, one of the truths of the Bible that I think we have lost sight of, something we don't keep at the forefront of our minds, is this whole idea of sin. You know, we've heard so many teachings on sin, We've heard so many messages on sin. We've read so much about sin in the Bible and in other books uh, that you might read. Uh, but some of us may, and even our culture, may tend to look at sin as not as bad anymore. They're, they're just mistakes. They're just mess-ups that we've had. Now, there's this uh, idea out there. It's called Respectable Sins. And what that is, there's actually a book called Respectable Sins. Uh, and basically what the book is trying to point out is that there are a bunch of things within us, things, sins that we tolerate, uh, within us that are, are sinful. And we just allow those, we accept them uh, inside of us. We don't really condemn them as sins. Maybe when we, we do them, we just call them mistakes. We just call them mess-ups, but we never call it sin. So a lot of us, maybe we get angry. You know, if you're like me, you get angry on the road all the time. Some old lady cuts you off and goes 20 below the speed limit. And so you get angry at those people. You get angry at a family member who says something to you, does something to you, and so you, you unleash your anger upon them. You do something to them, say something to them. We envy other people's things. Now, maybe you don't envy other people's things. You don't envy the family that they have. But maybe in some sense, you're discontent with the things that God has given you. And so, in a sense, you are envious of what you don't have, what you're lacking in your life. And some of us might be selfish. You know, we, there may be a lot of things that we do in our lives that we say we're doing it for other people, and yet we really are only doing it for ourselves. We're doing it so that we feel good, not really so that other people can benefit. And so be, because we've lost sight of this idea of sin, I think we actually neglect what it really does to us, what it really does uh, in our world, what it does to God. Now think about it. If you are married, you have or have had a significant other, or do have a significant other, you're dating somebody, when you do something against them, when you uh, lie to them, when you, if you cheat on them, if you, uh, you know, do say something in anger to them, what does that do? Now, it doesn't bring much joy to anybody, but really what it does between you and your spouse or you and your significant other is that it creates distance. It creates space between you and that person. Now, when we do something sinful, 
It's in the same way or in the same sense, this is what it does to God. It creates distance between us and Him. And so when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we envy, when we are selfish, when we do all these things, we're creating this distance between us and God. And it's this whole idea of sin that's going to bring us to Genesis chapter 3, which we commonly refer to as the fall of humanity, uh, the fall of Adam, whatever else. There are a lot of different things that we call it. But this is when Adam and Eve choose to do what is contrary to what God actually wants them to do. And what we're going to find is that sin is the very thing that separates us from God. But it's God's grace, it's God's unmerited favor. It's not dependent on anything that we do. It's not dependent on who we are. It's given to us freely. And it's God's grace, and here's the truth I think it's communicating to us, that grace closes the gap, so it closes that distance that we create, or that, excuse me, that sin actually creates in our lives. So everything that we choose, the choices we have each and every day uh, to do something other than what God wants us to do creates distance. But God's grace is always there for us and closes that distance that we create. And so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, we're going to go there, or it's going to be on the screen here. Nicholas, do you mind uh, scrolling through as I read? All right, Genesis chapter 3. So it says in verse 1, Now the serpent, which is Satan, or in the New Testament, the devil, was more crafty uh, than any other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the, any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will, certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good to evil, uh, good and evil. And again, that's contrary to what God has told them in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, what God's commanded them not to do, and they're doing the opposite of that. And so and oftentimes, when you look at your own life, if you ever sense anything in your life, you think that God's speaking to you, but whatever you're hearing is contrary to what's in this book. That's not the truth. It's a lie to you. Okay, so if there's ever anything, you're looking for life direction, you're looking, you know, should I date this person? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this degree? Whatever. If it's contrary to this, it's a lie. And that's exactly what Satan's doing here. The serpent is doing. Contrary to what God had told them to do. It's what he's telling them to do. Then verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked as he walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the trees that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. 
To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which, uh, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He was not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so I feel like since we didn't do chapter 2, just to give some context of what's happening right before this. And so, basically, what Moses is telling us in Genesis 2 is that the rest of creation, uh, sort of another look, another perspective on God creating, hu- creating humankind. And a couple of weeks ago, I used the image of sort of, a, of like an ice cream sundae, where you have your ice cream, whatever, and then you have your toppings around it. And humanity, when God creates that, we're basically the cherry that's on top of this. We, we complete it all. We're the climax of it all. And so God creates the man. And so he creates the man, places him in the garden, and places him in there to enjoy his presence, to enjoy everything that's been created. And then he creates other animals, and uh, Adam is looking for a partner. There's none suitable within all these animals. And so God creates for him uh, Eve, the woman, out of a rib on his side, and creates her, and then places both of them in the garden, uh, to enjoy each other, to enjoy God's presence, to enjoy everything that God has created. Now, before Eve was created, before Eve formed the, uh, God formed the woman, God had given a command to Adam. He said, you know, you can eat off of anything you find here in the garden, except for one tree. Don't eat off the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as we view here in the story, that's, ex- that's exactly what they did. They ended up eating off of that tree. And so that's why it's become known as the fall of humankind, the fall of humanity, where we make the biggest mistake of all and the biggest mistake in, of Adam, and that it's going to affect our relationship with God from that point uh, forward. And so that's where God, humanity chose decisively a life apart from God, where Adam and Eve chose something other than God's best for them, and again, causing a rift between us and God for the rest of humanity's existence. Now, most of us, we've heard the story, you know, many, many times. Again, it's maybe become too familiar with us that maybe we don't, we don't read it often. We don't think about really what it's telling us. But if I were to ask you, you know, what, what's the purpose of this? What does it serve? In, what purpose does this story serve in the Bible? What purpose does Eve, Adam and Eve's sin and their punishment, what purpose does that serve in the Bible and what purpose does that serve in our own lives? Now, we might think, you know, this is a given. This is an obvious answer. You know, if you have theologians like, like Robin over here who, who, have an, who have an answer for that. Maybe a lot of us here have an answer for that. What, the, what purpose this whole story serves? Now, maybe you think like in Romans 5.12, you know, this is where Paul tells us that basically it was all Adam's fault. 
That's the reason why we sin. It's all because of Adam. And I think I've got it on here. Yeah, so in Romans 5.12, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, talking to Adam, and death through sin, so we'll go through the rest of this here in just a second, but basically telling us that really Adam is to blame for everything that has gone wrong in this world. But did you know human sin in the Old Testament, when they talk about sin, they actually never blamed Adam. If you look after Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are mentioned four times after that, and they're never mentioned in the context of their sin. What's the thing that they've done? So for the Israelite people, really, sin was something that was done inside themselves, and something that they, the, the distance that was between them and God was caused by them alone, and not necessarily because of Adam. And so in the New Testament, this same passage here, uh, in a sense, does blame Adam, but it also says, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. And so, of course, Adam, what he did in the garden, that's the reason we have sin. That's the reason we have guilt. That's the reason we have death in our world. He's, he's, the, he's the, 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 to blame for that. But when we think about why is it that we all sin, it's not because of Adam's sin. I mean, we can look to Adam and say, yeah, the presence of sin and guilt and death, sure, his fault. But the reason we sin is because we choose each and every day to make choices, to make decisions that are contrary to what God wants us to do in our lives. And so I think Genesis 3 uh, tells us a lot for today. I think it serves a greater purpose uh, in our lives and maybe it reminds us of truths that maybe we have lost sight of or truths that because we're so familiar with them, we don't keep them at the forefront of our minds anymore. But I think what Genesis 3 reminds us of is, first off, what sin is. You know, if I were to go to each and every one of us and ask, you know, what, 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 do you, what do you think sin is? If you can give me a definition of what sin actually is, uh, we might have some answers like this. You know, like missing the mark is one answer that I often hear. And that's as if we have Jesus as our goal, and, or maybe Jesus at the center of like a, a little dartboard, and missing that every time. This is, that would be missing the mark. We have his lifestyle as our goal, but yet we constantly mess up. We don't ever reach that goal. Sin might also be a breach of trust. You know, God gives us the gift of free will. Uh, he gives us the ability, the opportunity to make the right choices. But oftentimes we choose contrary to that. We choose the opposite of what God wants us to do. Uh, we might also see sin as sort of rebellion against God. And that's when we substitute our ideas of good and bad for God's ideas of good and bad. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Now, we may also think about sin uh, uh, in, in the sense of how, what it does to us and what it does to other people. So when we sin, when we do something bad uh, in our lives, when we know we do, we've done something wrong, we, we sense guilt because we've done that. Uh, and when we hurt other people, we, we sense the awkwardness that's now been uh, created there because of the things that we have done. Now, we, uh, the real tragedy about sin, though, is really not what it does inside of us, what it does to what we do to other people, but really what it does to God, what it does to our relationship with Him. Now, in recent news, I don't know if you've seen pictures like this, but recently, people, uh, out of protests and things like that, they, you see people stomping on the U.S. flag, you see them burning the U.S. flag and all these other things, and these are all like citizens of the United States, you know, tainting the country in which they were born in and the country that they live in. And really what they're doing here, they're not hurting the United States physically, okay? But they are disrespecting 
the United States. They are defiling the name of the United States of America. And so sin, when we sin, it's the very same thing to God. It's like we don't hurt God physically. I mean, maybe, you know, if you think about it, maybe, yeah, we break his heart or something like that. But we don't hurt him physically, but we disrespect him. But in a more extreme sense, we actually defile his name. We defile him and his presence and his name in this world when we decide to do the things contrary to what God wants us to do. And so I think Genesis 3 reminds us of that. You know, however you define sin, always keep that at the forefront of your mind, what it really is. And if you can't remember what you think that is, read Genesis 3, and I think that will kind of bring something to your mind of what that really is. I think Genesis 3 also reminds us of the reality of sin in our world. You know, our world as a whole has lost the idea of sin. Uh, we don't, you know, when you watch the news, you never say, people are never said that they're, that they're sinners or they've committed a sin. They've killed somebody, or they cheated on their spouse and ended up killing somebody, or they kidnapped some kid and did something terribly wrong to those people. It's like we never, we're never uh, strong enough, don't have the courage to say that these people are sinners. And I don't blame the news because they're probably not even Christian anyway. Who knows? But and if they are, they, they're not, they're not going to use that word. Because I think that word sin or someone's a sinner it just seems like it's offensive uh, to our culture, and it might be offensive to even some of us if you really think about the things maybe you're doing in your life. And well, when you talk about sin in our world, we really only talk about sin maybe, you know, in regards to like a dessert. You know, how many of you have had like a sinful dessert recently? Anybody? You know what I'm talking about when I say sinful dessert? It's like uh, having a three-layer uh, three chocolate cake or something, and you're supposed to be on a diet or something like that. And so it's something that you don't indulge in, something that you're not, you don't, you're not supposed to indulge in. And so we usually only refer to sin sort of in that context. We never call anybody, anybody or anything that they do, call them a sinner, or we don't call them sinful either. Now, the generation that used to actually take the reality of sin seriously is a generation that's, I think, way behind us, and maybe some of you are part of this, the, the generation that this would describe. But I read this. It says, in talking about sin, one commentator says that Christians hated it, they feared it, fled from it, grieved over it, and some of our grandparents agonized over their sins, a man who lost his temper might wa wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might worry whether this sin threatened her salvation. Nowadays, the accusation you have sinned is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, the accusation still had power to jolt people. Catholics lined up to confess their sins. Protestant preachers rose up to confess our sins, and they did that regularly. And so maybe you, think, maybe you think that applies to our culture now. Maybe you disagree that it does. But this is, he's talking about a generation that's long, long past. Uh, but I think in our culture today, we're only willing to go as far as admitting that we've made mistakes, that we've messed up. But we never actually say that we have sinned to any degree. Now, maybe we do in here, but I think our broader culture is not as far from actually saying that very thing. And our culture even contradicts itself. You know, you watch the news and you see some breaking news that some uh, sex trafficking uh, operation has been broken up. And then yet, when you go to commercials, you see highly sexualized commercials for Victoria's Secret or whatever else. Or you see some movie trailer for some movie about a college frat party or something like that. And so 
we, we contradict ourselves on really what we're condemning and what we're approving uh, in our culture. And even when we look beyond ourselves, even when we look beyond the news, uh, we can look into our world and we can see that sin, that guilt and death is all present. You know, people are dying every day. As far as I can tell, I mean, everyone's dying either because of old age, they die unexpectedly from some disease or they get in a car accident. Uh, we see people die in just many other ways, maybe because of the environment that they were born into. So that's all present in our world. Uh, people are also hurt every day, you know, by the anger, or by something we said or something that we do. Or maybe because we envy something and we take it a step too far, we do something that we we're going to regret and it hurts other people. Uh, and I'm sure we can all think of other places where we can see like the reality of sin, the reality of death, and the reality of guilt in our world. And because of that, because the sin is real, it's a reality, I think we also see in Genesis 3 that are given a reminder that we also need to be aware of our own sin. We really need to be aware of our capacity, our ability to sin every day. Uh, we need to truly believe and we need to say that we're sinful. Now, that doesn't mean that we're doing evil every day or we're terrible people. So just because, just because you, someone tells you a Christian or a follower of Jesus says, you know, I am sinful, doesn't mean they're evil or they're doing evil things out here that they're killing a whole bunch of people. And one way to look at it, uh, I read this, I thought this was really good. It says that not that at every point people are as bad as they can possibly be, but that at no point is anyone as good as he or she should be. Now, when we're aware of our sin, we recognize that we're acting less than God's best for us. We're acting less than how God wants us uh, to act or to respond to Him uh, in this world. Now, in a very real way, when we look at Genesis 3, I think we can find a little bit of our story uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 3. A little bit of how we would respond if we found ourselves in the very same situation. Because you see, Adam and Eve, they lived in the Garden of Eden. I got a little picture for that. This is not actual. I think this was a Thomas Kincaid picture or something. Not the actual picture. But this was pretty close to maybe the environment that Adam and Eve actually uh, lived in. They lived in paradise. They walked with God. They talked with God. They were in the most perfect environment. And probably the two people in our entire existence, aside from Jesus that were in the most perfect environment where they couldn't, they, they, they couldn't sin or had the opportunity not to sin because everything was so perfect. Living with God, walking with God. You know, how, how much better can you get than that? To not, you know, to not have any temptation around you, uh, to have the best chance of not sinning in your entire life. But yet, even being in paradise, being in the Garden of Eden, being in God's presence, they still sinned. And once they were aware of their sin, what did they do? You know, they, they hid themselves. They hid from God and thinking that he actually wasn't going to find them. And if you remember, God was asking, you know, where are you? He didn't need to know the answer to that question. He already knew where they were. He was just wanting them to admit that they actually had done something wrong and that they were actually trying to hide from him. But the greater truth of all this is that sin is inevitable in our daily lives because we are human. Now, for Adam and for us, that doesn't mean that we're destined to sin. Uh, we're not destined to sin. Now, if, if you are more theological, you might, we might have a conversation about maybe what that means or how, we go, what, how do we define that term. 
but you're not destined to sin. I think when Adam fell, I think if we found ourselves in the very same situation, because we're human, because we're weak, we're going to sin. If given the temptation, if given the opportunity, we're going to choose to do that thing that's contrary to what God wants us to do, especially if it looks good enough, we're going to do it. And so in this life, we're, we're going to sin. We're not always going to live this life that God calls us to live uh, perfectly. You know, we're going to get angry at people who are driving around the road really slow. We're going to envy uh, the family that someone has or the stuff that they have, the money that they have. We're going to envy, uh, you know, other people's, you know, what a money, I say money, either friends, whatever else. We're going to lust. You know, if you're a guy, you're a man, you're probably going to lust. And if you haven't lusted yet, you probably, you know, actually, if you haven't lusted, if you say you haven't, you are lying to me. And so that's another sin. So you, you're lusting too. And so we're going to do that. That's inevitable. It's because we're human. It's because we are weak. We're going to do that. We're going to sin. It's inevitable. But just like our story, despite our, the sin in our lives, despite the distance that we place between us and God because of the things that we do, God's grace is always there for us. And it's only when we come to grips with that idea of the reality of sin and the reality of sin within us that we're going to sin each and every day that we can then appreciate God's grace and appreciate God's compassion for us. And God's grace, again, is that unmerited favor. Uh, it's what God gives us freely. It's not dependent on what we've done, what we're doing, what we will do, or who we are, but God gives us that grace freely. Now, there's some people, there's some teachings out there that say if you look at the Old Testament, like you don't see any grace, you just see law, you just see religion, you just, you don't see any grace at all. But if you go all the way to Genesis 3, I think this is probably one of the first instances of grace in the entire Bible. Because what we read at the end of Genesis chapter 2 is that Adam and Eve, they were both naked and they had no shame. That's where we left off. And then we start in Genesis 3 verse 1 where we see the serpent and he's tempting the woman. And so again, when they do decide to take of the fruit, they eat of it. They realize that they're naked and they realize that they have shame because what they have done. And so grace, where that comes in, it comes in where in the story you see that God sews for them garments of clothing. For them to wear. He does for them what they couldn't do for themselves. He, in a sense, covers their shame by physically covering them. And that's something they could not do. That was only something that God's grace could do for them. And that's only something that God's grace could actually do for us as well. Now, if you really think about the story, like God could have, I'm not saying he was going to, but God could have ended his relationship with humanity at that point. He could have said, you know, Adam and Eve, I created them, put them in a perfect environment, and I wanted them to love me, I wanted them to follow me, but they have chosen something other than me. They don't want to love me, they don't want to follow me. So I'm just going to end that right there. And I'll be content with the trees, the plants, the animals, everything else, because they're not going to talk back to me, they're not going to do what I don't want them to do. But yet these humans who have been created with free will have chosen something other than to follow God. He could have said that, but we know the rest of the story. There's, if, he, if he ended it there, we would only have three chapters, but there's the rest of the Bible. God continues his relationship with each and every one of us. And again, that's because of God's grace. That's because of God's compassion that this story goes on. You know, when we look at the story of Adam and Eve, I mean, we say, well, why would God want to be involved with that? 
No, again, it's not dependent on anything that we do. It's not dependent on who we are. It doesn't matter what we're going to do in the future. God's grace is always there for us. And until we come to grips with the reality that we are going to sin, that we are sinful people, we're never going to be able to appreciate the grace that God has and the grace that God offers each and every one of us. And it's only because of that grace and compassion that we actually have the opportunity or the chance of new life that we can have with God. Now here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.22. He says, For as in Adam all die. So again, because of Adam's sin, uh, guilt, sin, and death are all present in our world. So in Christ all will be made alive. So it's, it was inevitable that Adam was going to sin. It was going to happen. He's human. He's weak. We are also going to sin because we're human, because we're weak. We're going to always choose something other than God's best for us. But thanks be to God that God has given us His grace, that God gives us this grace freely. And He does that through Jesus. That we don't have to stay dead, but that we can actually have new life because of Jesus. Because Jesus came to this world and died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could have new life as well.